welcome to The Art of Making, the IoT Manufacturing's podcast where we talk to leading entrepreneurs, technologists, researchers and policymakers about the state and future of the European manufacturing industry. I am your host, Maxime Montmorency, and this is The Art of Making. Today we are joined by Gerd Leonhardt, renowned futurist and author working on the intersection of humanity and technology. We discuss the technologies, trends, evolutions and revolutions shaping the future of the manufacturing industry. Hello Gerd, thank you so much for joining us on The Art of Making. Thank you for having your time. Good to have you here. Yeah, you're welcome. Great pleasure. Or I should actually say, uh, welcome back. You were uh, a guest, a keynote speaker um, on the Manufacturing Day 2023 in Vienna. Yeah, that was fun. It was a great event. <laughs> it was a great event, exactly. Uh, so you talked about the uh, the next decade in, in manufacturing. Um, so highlighting some trends, some technologies that will impact the manufacturing industry in the next 10 years and beyond. So for our listeners as well, these talks are on your YouTube channel and on Spotify as well, if I'm correct. So yeah. anyone who is audio. interested, just head over to uh, Get Leonhard on YouTube on Spotify and um, have a listen. It was a really interesting keynote. Now you talked about the three revolutions in manufacturing, right? The digital revolution, sustainability revolution, purpose revolution. Uh, let's let's start here. What exactly are these three revolutions in manufacturing? Yeah, I think they apply pretty much for any industry, but especially in manufacturing, uh, because uh, there's three revolutions that I talked about there. The first one is a digital revolution, which means that everything is becoming connected and smart. I wouldn't necessarily say intelligent. Uh, that's another level. But just getting connected and smart is already you know, mind-boggling revolution in terms of savings of cost, efficiency and speed and environmental protection. That's even without switching the energy source, you already got getting to 60-70% less pollution and less waste and things like that. So like predictive analytics and robotic process automation, you know, this is like, of course, everyday agenda for pretty much every business, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But that's the first one. The second one is 100x, when people don't understand this, that when we're switching, you know, 100 years of fossil fuel industry, switching to renewable and sustainable in a decade. This is like, despite of what happens at COP28 in Dubai uh, and everything, this is the agenda that's number one on a worldwide level because we're getting to climate emergency and all the governments around the world have huge agendas on this. And now it turns out that going green is actually not just a money spender, it's also a money maker. Right? So people are investing yeah. trillions literally in the green economy. So that is the biggest shift in our lifetime is that we're going to go away from all these things that produce fossil fuel emissions and CO2 to uh, basically uh, green, circular, sustainable, everything. It will take some time in some industries like airlines. But so that's the biggest shift. And the last one is the purpose revolution, which is younger people coming into business, leading businesses. When I say younger people, I'm talking roughly 25 to 45. Uh, so people my age, boomers and Gen X, um, Gen, uh, yeah, Gen X, they're moving out of the flow of money and transaction and politics in the next decade. Mm -hmm. And they're still there, you know, but, but basically people between 30, 40, 50 are taken over. 
and they have a different agenda. And their agenda means not just making more money and more profit, but also creating a positive, what I call the good future. Right? So they want people, planet, purpose, and prosperity. <laughs> and my generation yeah. was primarily concerned with prosperity. So now all these three are coming together, creating essentially a mountain of chaos uh, and what I call perma change. And by 2030, most of these will be in full swing. And if you're not prepared for what that means, and you're the first one to take action and actually be part of it, uh, things will get very tight for those that are too late to the party. Mm -hmm. So, for, yeah, it's really about the impact, right? Especially in the purpose uh, revolution these days. Uh, now, if you it's dive just into... A, it's, it's, it's a wider way of thinking, right? So you, you don't think mm -hmm. about... Uh, or you don't think of those things as separate anymore. So if you take big blue technology and big green mm -hmm. sustainability, that alone is uh, trillions of dollars of shift in, in different directions. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, geopolitics is basically making a mess out of all the things that we thought were stable, you know, the Soviet Union versus Russia. And now it's like five different blocks around the world dealing with yeah. geopolitics. You know, it's, it's confusing. But I think really what it means now is that we have this confusing year or two, and then we're moving into a new world where things are all of a sudden going to be different. So if we're going to try and break this down a little bit, right? So if you talk about the digital revolution, you're also talking about new technologies, comparing a little bit, you know, the decade in the future versus decades uh, in, in the past. We have technologies now with that. Just a decade ago, we, we could not even imagine, or we're still in very early development, uh, or we're not profitable yet, as, as you implied uh, before. You know, things like, like quantum computing, 3D printing on a large scale, digital twins, renewable energy, uh, all the possible applications of artificial intelligence, especially generative AI. Um, now, none of these technologies or solutions will be the sole or only solution that will solve our big challenges. It will probably be a combination of these, right? So which of these combinations are you most excited about or have the most potential? Yeah, I, I think it's quite clear that the compound effect is what we're looking for, right? So you have five or six, what I call the, the game changers, you know, the king makers or queen makers, right? So mm -hmm. you basically have technology that's compound one on top of the other. So First, we have uh, powerful computing, supercomputing, quantum computing, we, which means limited computing power to do any practical task of computing. So in manufacturing, that means, for example, real-time robotic process automation, mm -hmm. uh, anticipation, prediction, all of these things that were, you know, using huge, huge amount of data volumes that were unthinkable before. And now we have AI that is making sense out of the data. Uh, in a machine learning kind of way. So it's not truly intelligent like a human, but it is capable of taking, you know, a, a trillion data feeds and saying, okay, here are the patterns. Um, and we have to figure out how real that is in terms of the actual, the truth behind the patterns. But for, for manufacturing, this will be pretty straightforward, logical things, right? So mm -hmm. it should be very good for that. And on top of that, then we have uh, sooner or later, probably 15 years from now, we're solving energy. So we have un we will have unlimited energy. I always say uh, jokingly, uh, energy like Spotify. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like, okay, we'll, we'll still pay for energy, 
But once we have fusion energy and, you know, the, the age of renewables is just exploding. I mean, if you live in Spain or Greece or India, for that matter, it's cheaper to use solar energy than to use coal. It's just that you have the coal already, right? So people are keep using it. But, you know, we see right now the discussion in Dubai is raging. Basically, we can make this shift. This is just a purely money and political policy question. Uh, because people yeah. are selling the oil and the gas, of course, they are they have an agenda of keeping that going. But now we we have the possibility. So when you take all the compound effects, you can safely say, you know, that we're going to solve most practical problems in the next two decades. Uh, the things that we don't solve, they're human problems. You know, cultural, social, religious, political uh, issues where we have to get on the same page. You know, for example. What do we allow AI to do or not to do? Uh, those are policy issues. Mm -hmm. They have nothing to do with tech. So basically, technology is, is in, in 10 years, in 2030, technology will be almost unlimitedly capable of doing practical things uh, that are based on logic and computing. Uh, other things, you know, ethical decisions like self-driving cars, that's difficult mm -hmm. because it's not logical, <laughs> really. Uh, but, you know, we're going to solve almost every practical problem. So in manufacturing, that means, for example, 3D printing. Uh, it means synthetic biology, creating new materials based on biological mechanisms like biofermentation and cultured meat and, you know, all of these things. It's, it's truly mind-boggling. If we have the right policy in place to make sure that everybody has a benefit, I think it should be absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. It almost looks a little bit like... Uh... Like we had in, in Star Trek, right? In next generation, you have this kind of um, machine that can basically, out of no, nothing and, and thin air, create anything at all, right? That would be a, a not, amazing not, not quite yet, but, but I think I, <laughs> I think the reasonable stuff, you know, like we can create uh, building materials, you know, from a 3D printer, and we used to have concrete. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's 45,000 kilos of concrete. Uh, in the world already for every citizen, 45,000 kilos. So, you know, if we can create concrete that we can print from a machine and then we can, you know, we can print walls and, you know, we can reduce emissions already right there by three to five percent. That's without any sort of real rocket science. I mean, this is, it's going to be mm -hmm. more costly in the beginning, but you know how that goes with technology. The, the curve goes up like this. I think it's called Wright's Law. The more we produce, of the same thing, the more technology we use there, the lower get, the price gets. And that becomes basically self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's uh, it's possible, and when it scales, it gets very cheap in, in many cases. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. Now, how, how can companies uh, leverage this, this compounding effect of these, these new technologies? How, how will this translate into new business and new business models? Yeah, I think there are several keys here. One is that we're creating ecosystems now, not ecosystems. You know, ecosystem was Microsoft before the internet, really, uh, was it was an ecosystem. Or in many ways, you could say Apple is kind of a mix of ego and eco. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's the last company that has kind of a, a strong uh, uh, sphere of being only them, you know. But basically, every successful company in the world will create an ecosystem that works with hundreds of partners who are all part of creating progress together. And unlike it was 20 years ago, where you would own things from, from A to Z, 
now you collaborate to make it happen. So uh, while you're looking at car companies like Tesla, you know, they're building their own chips and they're building their own, making their own tires even, right? It probably makes sense there. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, in manufacturing, it will be largely based on creating an ecosystem where you work with many startups who are inventing tiny pieces of what you need at the right time and working with them and, of course, also with, with uh, research organizations and so on. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it'll move much quicker, uh, creating more opening for interesting companies that are there first. So it, it's, it'll be more organic. Uh, one can only hope that we're not going to go the same way than e-commerce, which has been polarized and, and kind of captured all by Amazon kind of idea, uh, because they are so super fast with innovation that everybody else is just watching and, and, and not catching up. Mm -hmm. So I think with manufacturing, it'll be much more diverse. Um, it'll be subject to also completely new regulation. Like all of manufacturing, distribution, R&D, shipping, container, logistics, supply chain, the regulation to keep it green will be humongous in many countries. So uh, to anticipate mm -hmm. that would be the key for businesses to say, okay, we got to get ready for making this process circular and sustainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, this is what we see as well. It's all about the, the ecosystems. Nobody can do it alone, especially in, in a hardware environment uh, like manufacturing. And there, the, the value chain and the ecosystem all around the company is and will in the future be extremely important and even more important than it is now, probably. You know, um, there's a general principle to this. Uh, the general principle mm -hmm. is uh, in a Hemingway quote, uh, uh, gradually, then suddenly. So basically mm -hmm. what happens is you go along very gradually and you, you, you don't see much happening, but all of a sudden there's a pivot point where, for example, 3D printing will become completely normal. So I can order my spare parts from, for my car or my trucks, uh, and it will be printed at the station with a big uh, printing machine on a UPS truck or so, and then, and then I'll get it from there. I'll have it in two hours, mm -hmm. and it, it won't be shipped from China, you know, if I have a Chinese yeah. car, which is likely. <laughs> so, so all of these <laughs> things are basically, you know, that is going to change the entire world, how we do things. We'll bring the price down. It will create more competition. It will be much more nature positive. Uh, and these things are happening. We have to anticipate this. And basically, every business now has to think in windows. You know, So we have a window today where we manufacture, we do things in a certain way. And then, oh, I don't know where that's coming from. Um, <laughs> that was interesting. Oh, and that's because I think I made the gesture. Um, OK, sorry that's about gonna that. That's going to be for, for the <laughs> The listeners who can also uh, see the video on YouTube, you're, you're going to be in for a surprise, guys. Go to YouTube. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> I, I have to see where I can switch that off. New anyway, studio so with, with amazing functions. <laughs> I have my special effects that I create with my hands. <laughs> anyway, um, so I, I think that is going to be imperative to anticipate this and to invest early, but not too early. Because here's the thing, you know, right now many of these things are like concrete, recyclable concrete from a 3D printer is 10x, okay? Mm -hmm. But when the time comes where it's two and a half x and the long-term benefit is clear, then it becomes normal and you have to be ready to switch. It's just like now, you know, nobody in their right mind will buy a car with a gas engine today. I mean, it's already there. There are, there are very few people not considering electrics. 
you know there are many issues with electrics and, and so mm -hmm. basically when the when that switch happens it's it's a mass movement it's like going from the cd to yeah. the, the the cloud and spotify you know yeah yeah especially in terms of electric vehicles of course uh here policy is very important to some countries in europe for example where policy is really policy is really pushing for um for these electric vehicles um I want to circle back a little bit to what you just said about, for example, this 3D printing um, spare parts, for example, this kind of manufacturing as a service model, mm -hmm. right? Is, is this where you see um, the manufacturing industry going? You know, in general, of course, well, there are several questions. One is what do we actually manufacture and ship? Mm -hmm. And what do we manufacture remotely by sending the... Uh, the digital instructions for it to be printed somewhere else, and you know, uh, and what will be the the benefit of that, and you know, what will people pay for it, and all these kind of things. It's going to be rather complicated, but I can easily see, you know, shoes and those kind of products being printed on demand. Um, in a way, we have similar things already, where you can have things printed on demand different places. We also have three D printable food. Uh, and of course, we have vertical farming, which means that in many countries where it's pretty hot outside, you have a vertical farm and you don't ship the food anymore because it's right in the city where you need the food. So um, there'll be no shipping there. But in terms of actual products, you know, we're probably going to stop shipping a lot of products that are kind of one-way use products. Uh, mm. And we'll have places to print them and then places to recycle them. Um, Having said that, I think we're also going to have completely different products that are made out of material that can only be done on location in some specific factory, like artificial spider silk. You know, that is way too complicated to make on demand. Uh, and there'll be always those kind of things as well. Um, but I think the progress, generally, of course, there'll be lots of automation. So uh, we'll be able to print things and, and uh, manufacture things on demand in an automated way. Mm -hmm. Um, and remotely as well. So lots and lots of really powerful changes there. Having said that, also, I think that some products will probably be discontinued that we don't feel like we really want them anymore. Or just like, for example, in the mm -hmm. travel business, I think we're going to find that sooner or later we'll probably have to dial back on cruise ships. You know, they're just not mm -hmm. environmentally friendly, no matter how which way you look at it. Uh, it's kind of a losing proposition. It's kind of like a, like a CD, you know. If you like a CD, that's great, but it's just not going to be a major product anymore. Um, yeah. And some of those things are fading out, and other ones are coming in. We just have to be aware of what they are. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now you touched about uh, on on automation technologies just now. Um, so some some technologies are already more prevalent than than others. Automation being one of them. So this is a trend that is in full string. Um, there is a lot of conflicting talk about these technologies, uh, especially robotics, AI, ranging from its huge potential and its destructive potential uh, to alleviate boring and routine tasks, all the way to the other side of the spectrum of massive job loss, uh, especially for blue-collar workers. And, and here we talk about upskilling, reskilling. Um, in, in your opinion, what will be the impacts of these technologies, robotics, artificial intelligence, um, on, on society and for workers, employees? 
You know, I think that there's two things here. One is that I think right now uh, automation and what I call augmentation, which is helping humans to mm -hmm. do the job better, uh, they, they kind of go hand in hand. And, you know, people think that things can be automated like driving or like flying or the call center, but they don't realize that this is only pieces of it can be automated. Uh, the other pieces, and sometimes they can be big pieces, right, like in the call center, but many other pieces cannot be easily automated because they require human judgment and human agency and flexibility. And most machines are not at that point to where they can say, I can do this job. If there's a tiny variation, the machine will just stop working completely or it will just completely derail. And mm -hmm. I think that all these things will be fixed, but it's not as simple as we thought. I mean, look at Elon Musk said, you know, I don't know, in the beginning of 14 years ago or so, that by 2020, we'll have a million self-driving cars in every major city. Uh, and now we have two. You know, so, so it's like, okay, yeah, in principle, it should be doable. It's not that simple with automation. And I think really what's happening is that when we automate things, it's kind of like 90% of Europeans worked in agriculture 150 years ago, and now it's 2%. And we're not all unemployed. You know, and agriculture is still going strong. There are many issues there as well. But, you know, we shouldn't be too pessimistic necessarily on how we can adapt in principle. And the other thing is, why do we need to work 10 hours a day? I mean, there's no, if things are so efficient and our productivity just goes like this, and this is the prediction with AI, right, that we can be four to five X as efficient, like paralegals, like research organizations, like simple manufacturing, and all the simple mind-numbing stuff, you know, dirty, dull, and dangerous, like mining, and, and you know, the jobs that really few people would care to choose, you know, commodity jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, if they could be done by a machine, we'll have this productivity increase across the board, hopefully also in developing countries, we'll have this, this efficiency increase, which will see GDP go 20x potentially, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's the promise of technology. If we can take that money and distribute it evenly so that everybody has benefit, we may be looking at what France has been proposing all along. You know, that's five hours a day, four days a week. Maybe that's enough mm -hmm. for the same money. Of course, that's the key, right? So it's not that's that we're going to make less <laughs> money, right? So w w when, there is, when there is material benefit, right now, the technology has been not smart enough uh, so that we can distribute the benefit equally, no matter where you are. Right now, the benefit of technology goes to the ones with the technology and the owners mm -hmm. of the technology, and the top 10%, which is us, pretty much, yeah? because mm -hmm. we have access to it. But when it gets democratized in the right level, then we can say, you know, we don't need to work 10, 12 hours a day, because we do a lot of monkey work, you know, commodity work. I mean, mm -hmm. I do monkey work, yeah. right? it's just part of the job. So in manufacturing, mm -hmm. that means a lot of that work will be done by smart devices that are, you know, learning, machine learning, deep learning, uh, not learning like a human, but, you know, they're getting pretty smart. And I can rely on them to do a simple job. I cannot rely on them to do a complicated job because it's like a programmer. You know, I can rely on the machine to create a programming environment that is like 92% doable. But the top 8%, if I don't have those, it's still useless. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so basically, the programmer is going to be four or five times as smart, but he's not superfluous. Um, and yeah. I think this is what we're going to see. The problem will be primarily in developing countries 
with commodity jobs that a machine can do, like you know, uh, designing a bridge, uh, printing a three mm -hmm. D building, uh, you know, doing simple financial calculations and diligence and fact checking and filing. You know, there's there's I don't know probably a hundred million filing clerks around the world that file things in different mm -hmm. ways. Or when the machine can do that, what do we do with those people? And now we have to have an answer for the social policy. So um, that's going to be a challenge for government, I think, to figure out how exactly will you switch the benefit. And it cannot continue like we have, for example, in social media, where there's a huge amount of benefit from the, uh, the automation, the augmentation, but the benefit doesn't go to everyone. And uh, that creates all kinds of societal issues. So we have to think uh, broader mm -hmm. to create a collective benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a transition, probably. How can, how can um, well, let's link this maybe perhaps to the, the purpose revolution a little bit as well. Um, when, when you see that um, purpose impacts from, from a psychological point of view is, is a driving force and a source of intrinsic motivation in people, especially in, in these younger generations, as you mentioned. Um, so this is also a generational shift that coincides with let's say the danger of some of these people blue collar workers for example um losing their jobs how can employers adapt to both these shifts at the same time you know i think this is the question of the economic logic of the entire market uh, if the economic logic is profit maximization and growth at all costs then we're going to take that technology and fire as many people as possible. I mean, that, that, that is the consequence, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because you're looking at right now, the most important, the most, the biggest and most powerful company in the world today is Aramco, the Saudi Arabian oil company, okay? Yeah. Right, followed after Apple, right? Apple is the second one. Um, but Aramco is uh, admittedly a company that uh, I think the Secretary General Antonio Guterres said uh, their product is our demise. Right? <laughs> so they're, they're a company that do the most damage and they're the richest company in the world. So as long as the economic mm -hmm. paradigm is to maximize and extract, then we're heading towards a very bad place. Uh, now the economy is shifting. People are saying, you know, we really should be looking further because if we just extract, eventually that stop extraction, we're, we're done, right? Because there's nothing mm -hmm. to get from people or from fossil fuels or from data or like, you know, social media. So when that happens, I think we'll see people saying, okay, we're going to judge companies by those four things, people, planet, purpose, and prosperity. And then people who want to work for companies, they'll work for companies who have an emphasis on four things. And the bonus is paid on four things. The dividend is paid when you take all four things. You can't have 10, you know, from one to 10 on the scale. You can't have uh, 10 in every piece of those four, clearly. But, you know, if you just have one, a 10 in, in prosperity, nothing else, then uh, that will be very, very bad news for pretty much everyone. So this is happening now. I suspect it will, after we find a solution to the current war scenarios and the geopolitics here, uh, it will come into full swing when that's resolved, probably late 24 or so. Uh, I was hoping earlier for Russia, Ukraine, but we'll see mm -hmm. about that. But basically, this is what the way it's going, because it's quite clear we have to move into a new economic paradigm that moves away mm -hmm. from profit 
maximization at all costs. Yeah, yeah. If you look at statistics, uh, you see that, for example, drops in carbon output, if you refer, for example, to lockdowns during COVID crisis, have always led to, say, dips in, in GDP and in, in the economic output. Um, okay, degrowth itself is a philosophy and a story in itself, uh, which we won't go into now, but how can we decouple economic growth from carbon? Because this is, as you mentioned, a really important question. Well, we have already been doing that quite successfully. If you're looking at, you know, it's actually already started where GDP is going up and then emissions are kind of the same and even going down in some places. But the thing is that first we have to think of that globally. So we can't be successful if only Europe and the US and whatever other developed countries are reaching this way of going up while going down. Uh, that won't do us any good if Indonesia and India and Africa isn't coming along. So we'll have to spend lots of money and effort like we're doing right now in Dubai to get them to pull up. We have to, we have to fund this, you know, at the global level. Uh, and that is quite difficult because we have to think globally for that. Right? And the other thing is that you know, we have the technology in place to do that. For example, we can make transport and manufacturing and all of these things much more efficient and faster and cheaper by just switching to a more intelligent way of doing things. And that's, for example, in a city, in a smart city, consumes 50% less energy. That, these things are all possible now. We just have to make the decision to put the money in the right place. Uh, and government will certainly help with that with regulation. And we have to stop funding things that make no sense, like fossil fuel subsidies, you know, $5.6 trillion per year so that people can drive cheaper. I understand why you That's would huge. do that uh, to the farmers in Indonesia. That is good for them. But generally speaking, that's a deadly policy because it incentivizes bad behavior. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's easy for us to say because we're not there, but, but still, I think this is something that's going to happen. It's kind of inevitable. Uh, and when all these things fall into place, then you have this kind of chain reaction. Because, you know, we have the science and the tech. As we can see now, that's entirely possible. And we're going to keep having more science and tech. Like battery technology is a great example. We're inventing a new way of doing batteries pretty much every week. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a huge amount of progress there. If we were to put more money there and start shifting to uh, the, what's called the intergrid of energy, right? uh, as Jeremy Rifkin has proposed many times, a zero economy idea, uh, you know, we could totally get there. But now the policy has to catch up. So making this a priority and not being preoccupied with the negative part of policy, which is all about the shifting geopolitics in various countries mm -hmm. going rogue, so to speak. <laughs> you know, that, that's a major mm -hmm. concern now because it, it's tying up energy. Mm -hmm. can, can this, economically speaking, all of these investments and, and associated costs uh, in, in all of these technologies, which especially in deep tech uh, energy, are huge, huge amounts of money that we need to even develop all of these technologies. Can this, economically speaking, yield a net positive in the long term? Yeah, well, there's two things we have to think about there. One is that we would, we're not calculating the missed opportunity cost and the, and the damage cost if we're just thinking about the cost we're spending now. But imagine what happens when we have more uh, abnormal weather patterns and more floods yeah. and, 
and more demise and more people dying and more unproductivity because of climate change. That is a true cost as well. So we have to take that into concern and say, okay, we spend more now, but we avoid the negative costs later. Uh, then we come to a completely different calculation. And the other one yeah, clearly is, absolutely. yes, it will cost money, but you know, uh, in Germany, we had Eastern Germany join uh, the country again, and we had to pay a tax for a few years to bring them in. But now that we're one country again in Germany, there are benefits, hopefully, economic benefits to that, right? And, and, and we have invested. So I would be totally for a climate tax, uh, you know, voluntary or otherwise. I mean, if you had a voluntary climate tax, how many people would donate two or three percent of their tax, totally write off for climate technology? I think that would be quite a few. And we have to think radical because you know, here's the bottom line. Okay, in ten in ten years, in twenty thirty, this this logic will be prevailing, and the tech will have exploded. And then it all comes down to making that shift as quickly as possible if you want to be around to participate in the sort of post fossil fuel economy and the post, uh, well, I could say the post internet economy in many ways because then we'll be all about AI uh, and then we'll have to safeguard humanity as a result. So one or the other is working together. I think this is important for people to see at what point do we go all in and, and the, you know, the low-lying solutions, for example, with AI are really quite simple. Anything that I can do to make a process smarter and more connected and more anticipatory without creating a miracle machine, which doesn't exist, uh, you know, like, then I should do that first. And then I should look at switching the sources of energy. That could be costly, but the state will have to support it. So you can see this is working pretty well in Germany. Mm -hmm. If we weren't so occupied with the war machinery right now, uh, it would still be in full swing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we've come we've come to policies, right? You've, you've talked about policies in, a number of times now. Um, maybe there are like two kind of different directions that policies should uh, address. One being the behavior of the companies and incentivize uh, better behavior, a good future. And on the other hand, maybe also shift the mindset of the consumer to also incentivize them, consumer, the people, I don't really like the word consumer in this context, but so that they go towards a, a better future as well. So really these two kind of uh, groups that, that need to be incentivized um, will regulations or the current regulations, let's maybe start with this, will this be enough? to shift the mindset of both people and companies? Do we need more? Do we need something different? Yeah, I think we have to be clear about your know, sort of human nature. I think that um, I find it unlikely that businesses will be the number one lead here because businesses, mm -hmm. the job of a business is to monetize one way or the other. And this is, the, of course, the problem with the World Economic Forum. Uh, you, you can't do both at the same time, you know, make the world a better place and make tons of money. Uh, there are inherent conflicts there. So I think mm -hmm. this change in attitude has to come from the people first. Um, and I'm afraid that my generation wasn't very good at doing that because we were looking at this one direction of growth, you know, as the, the ultimate destination. But now you have people between 20 and, and 45, 50 
were thinking completely different. When they come in and take over companies and they take over governments, like in South America, uh, and then we see this forward uh, pushing thing where businesses can come along and they can say, yes, if, if this is what you want, we're, we're ready to do it, right? If you want electric cars, we're ready to, to supply them. And if you want uh, the end of plastic, we're, we're ready for that too. Um, and then the politicians will come in. The politicians will never lead the change to a better world because they have to get votes. And, mm. and who's going to vote for a petition that says we should have a tax on meat? You know, um, yeah. in a vegetarian country, maybe I don't know. I don't maybe Denmark, but you know, I don't know. But but generally speaking, it's hard for politicians to go first, and except for in the case of Mandela or Gandhi or so. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. but. So I, th I see this order like creating a movement, and, a, and we're seeing that happening right now, a movement towards a more balanced world, a movement, for example, in vegetarianism, you can see that already happening on the global, a movement away from fast fashion. Um, and you, you can see this already happening in various places. And then when that happens, everything else will fall into place. That's all going to happen in the next five years because you know the energy is steering up. So I always say only half jokingly, uh, if you live in the UK, you know what Extinction Rebellion is, you know, the climate mm -hmm. emergency uh, protest actions. We're going to see that times 100 pretty much in every country um, in different ways. And we have to get used to that. You know, having an SUV, a gas guzzling SUV is no longer cool, uh, even if you live in the most uh, uh, car friendly nation in the world. And that mm -hmm. becomes an, uh, something that we have to think about. Yeah. Can we manage these these transformational shifts towards more sustainable, resilient industry and world uh, and a circular economy? Can we can we manage this without regulation? Purely from these you know, grassroots movements. I, I think we're going to. It's always a question of a combination of those things. You know, you incentivize and you punish, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think the idea, for example, you take a personal carbon budget, that would be my proposal to, the, to this idea. You have your personal carbon budget and you can choose to spend it on flying or a fancy car or setting up a solarium on your house or whatever. You know? But you have your personal budget and if you have more money, then you have to pay extra for the extra thing. So if you fly once or twice a year, it's part of the budget. But if you fly a hundred times a year, like I do, you got to pay extra. And I think this should be the same in industry. So you have an extra carbon budget if you're going extra fancy with your cruise ship or something. And so we have this kind of mix of things that says, we don't want to punish too much. You know, I, I would be totally against that because when we have too many restrictions and you know you have to jump through hoops to innovate, you know, that's, that's also not so good. But having a play money that says, okay, if you do this, we'll give you a, a pot of money where you can investigate if this works which we kind of have in Germany, similar ideas, um, you know, incentives and disincentives. But sometimes I think the disincentives aren't big enough. So, you know, uh, for example, this is the end of ESG, right? This whole idea of ESG investing, uh, environmental, social, uh, governmental investing, you know, we're at the end of this because the whole thing turned out to be, uh, you know, mostly a kind of nice to have operation. You know, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't really doing any good. And people are hiding behind this. And now we have to move out and say, okay, it's getting real. These problems are not philosophical. They're not ephemeral. You know, they're, they're like hands down. Our two biggest problems are how do we deal with climate change? How do we control technology? And we can't just say, okay, you know, uh, we'll get to it when we can. You know, that, 
that part is over. So I think we're seeing that coming in pretty quickly now. And uh, no matter how far you think you are removed from these discussions, everything you invent in technology today, especially in manufacturing, production, uh, shipping, uh, all these things, is somewhat related to policy. Uh, and mm -hmm. policy, of course, relates to politics. Right? So, you know, I think we're seeing after the current swing back towards the more populist part, like in Holland or Italy or so, uh, we're going to see in a few years that none of that really worked very well. And, and then it's going to go back in the other direction towards a more, you know, uh, a global worldview, global consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a pendulum. Um, how do we make sure that, that these, these regulations on the national and the European level remain both sensible for business and not damage our global competitive position? Because, of course, Europe is not alone in the world. How do we make sure that we don't damage our own position there? Well, there are quite a few topics that are global by nature. You know, for example, the Montreal Agreement says that you can't put out the F F FCCs or whatever they're called any longer and you get punished and everybody agreed mm -hmm. because it was a problem for everybody. And if we're going to say, okay, uh, there are certain parts of manufacturing where we're going to prohibit certain ways of doing things, and we're going to incentivize others, then they would be subject to global agreement as well if they are on a fundamental level. Like controlling general intelligence, you know, machines that have an IQ of a billion, uh, that is certainly a global agenda. <laughs> and this is why I'm happy to see the, the drive towards the International Artificial Intelligence Agency, like, a, like the Nuclear Energy Agency. Um, that sounds actually like it could be feasible, except for that, you know, we have so many opinions, so there's lots of discussions there. But let's keep in mind, the last time we had the nuclear non-proliferation treaties, it took us 16, 17 years to get to that point in 1963, to agree and then sign. And then even then there were violations. So I think if it takes us five years to, for AI, that's the maximum it can take. And we're going to find a way forward of agreeing on standards. You know. I mean, it's not hard to see that every time you have good standards, you have supervision, you have, uh, uh, you have accountability, you know, the industry blossoms. If you don't have that and it's like people are unprotected, they don't feel safe. And uh, I think that's also for, for investors. How are you going to invest, for example, in nuclear fusion and next generation uh, renewable energy if you don't have a stable framework of how you're going to uh, come out the other end? Um, and I think that is really what we need right now. So there has to be a lot of collaboration. Mm -hmm. There's things that can be done on the local level, like in cities, with policies and stuff, and other ones have to be done on a national or even international level. But for us to point towards, say, China and say, okay, they don't care about privacy, so we're going to be disadvantaged with whatever they are doing with AI, mm -hmm. I think that's foolish because we can also say, let's all race to the bottom and, and see who gets there quickly enough. You know, that makes no sense yeah. because nobody wants to be at the bottom. None of the other guys want to be at the bottom. Nobody wants a world war started by an AI. Uh, and, and so there, there is an agenda of, uh, of collective uh, sense-making there. Yeah. Let, let's maybe end on, on a different note, just a, a uh, bonus question, so to say. So we talked about many of these technologies, especially also in artificial intelligence, new energy. Uh, means it, it does seem or the 
maybe the tendency is is to think that we in Europe might have already lost some of the tech races to the United States and to China, for example. Is there a domain where Europe can still lead? You know, I think that is it's a tough question. I lived in America for a long time, and I, you know, if you're looking at statistics, America uh, still has the most investment of all of the other countries combined in technology. So I think 256 trillion as compared to everybody else. You know? so, so the money is still focused there along with China doing similar things now. You know, one is state capitalism, the other one is uh, investor capitalism, but it's very similar in its nature. And in Europe, our biggest problem is not so much the investment money or the, uh, let's say, the, the hesitancy to spend on new things, but it's the, the future mindset. You know, we think of the future that as a uh, uh, as a difficult challenge, while Americans and Chinese think of the future as an exciting opportunity. Well, that's the nature of America, of course. It's all about pioneering, right? And, and so we need to change our mindset a little bit there. Uh, and if we innovate and we pioneer together on a European level, we have a billion people. We have quite a bit of funding, and this is what the Commission is trying to push, I think rightfully so. Uh, but with the humanitarian background, with a with an idea of saying it has to benefit humanity, it cannot just benefit money, um, and that may be sometimes slower, but probably more grounded. Um, mm. And I think you know, basically, in the next 10, 15 years, we're moving to a global agenda on these top level things. Like you know, if we invent nuclear fusion, basically that's the answer for all of our energy issues and for going to space and you know for desalination. Mm. And, and that's going to be a global thing. This is not a local thing. Right? So yeah. seeing that, it's quite clear that you know, Europe can take a leadership position in being sensible and innovative. But we have to create more incentives also in Europe to stay in Europe uh, by having a common market where your potential audience is a billion people, just like in China or you know, in the US or in Brazil, where you have you know, hundreds of millions of people as potential audience not like 7 billion in Switzerland. So, you know, to create that common market, what I call the United States of Europe, as, interest, uh, as tough as that may sound, that is the ticket. You know, because that's how we're going to build a market that's strong enough, also competitive enough, and keep our best research here rather than having those people go to America or to China because the pay is better. Mm -hmm. um, and. You know, it's a cultural thing. So in, we have to move forward towards a future-focused scenario. And one can only point towards Dubai, for example, right now, as the place that claims to be the future. You know, why don't we have that in Europe? Why don't we have a mm -hmm. place that claims to be future-focused here? You know, we have little pockets of this, for example, in Lisbon or so. But we generally don't have the courage you know, to step into the future in a more aggressive way, which mm -hmm. I think we should. Yeah, I think maybe it's a very nice message to, to end here today. Um, we, or you as a listener, are the future and you have the key in your hands, but practice your pioneering mindsets and link them to the European values. Kat Leonhardt, yeah, thank I you think so it's, much it's, it, for joining us. down to the courage. Yeah, you're welcome. You're yeah. Welcome. Sorry. <laughs> no, thank you so much. It's the courage that, that we need to to change things and I think that especially in younger generations we, we see that this this courage uh, and the, the urgency is also there. 
Yeah, I think, you know, as, as a bottom line for me, I think the next couple of years will be all about finding that courage and the wisdom to make the right decisions. Because in a world where everything is possible, you know, in the end, the people with courage and wisdom and understanding are the ones who, who will get to the, uh, to the close pretty quickly. Exactly. Katrin Hotz, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, super thank interesting talk. Uh, I would have loved to talk another two hours, but uh, unfortunately, we are limited here. Um, thanks so much. My pleasure. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe to The Art of Making on the podcast platform of your choice. We're also more than happy to hear from you. Or reach out through the EIT Manufacturing website, that is eitmanufacturing.eu, or find us on the usual social media channels. Take care and talk soon.